Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessed opportunity to gather tonight and to feast in your word. Enjoy truths, Lord, that resonate with our soul because the Spirit has changed our lives. He's regenerated us. He's made us new creatures. And so truth from God's word is always a blessing to us. Encourages us, convicts us, challenges us, motivates us. And Lord, we pray that that would be true tonight. We thank you that we do have a new story. The old story was pretty bad. It would have ended up in eternal destruction. But the new story is we're your children now. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Father's plan fully met. And all those truths and realities established in our hearts by the Spirit of God. So we do have a new story. May we tell that. Thank you for this opportunity tonight. May you be exalted in what we say here today. In Jesus' name, amen. I left off the last few verses of Numbers chapter 6 on purpose last week. Um, I could have just tagged it on in the end and made some mention of it, but it is such a beautiful, beautiful benediction to chapter 6. It is referred to a lot of things. It's sometimes referred to the blessing of Israel. Um, uh, some often referred to the Aaronic uh, benediction or Aaronic blessing. Uh, but it's something you've probably heard before. Uh, many churches will close in a benediction, thus as we do. Um, you probably heard in my benedictions, you've heard flavors of this uh, interweaved in with the truth that we were teaching on that day. Uh, But it's something that reminds us of the greatness of God. And there's so much truth to behold in this. So I thought we'd just take one more week in Numbers chapter 6 and look at this great benediction. We'll start in verse 22 and we'll read it here and then we'll get into it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So shall they invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. Well, in light of all that's been said by God throughout the Pentateuch, and particularly since they came out of Egypt, this is a beautiful short Prayer that causes the nation, I believe, to pause for a minute and realize the blessed relationship they have with God. Think about all the things that have been going on. There's cleansing going on. There's identifying of priests. There's even uh, uh, priest families being circled around the tabernacle. All the duties are being given. Uh, the tribes are set in their places. Everybody has a job to do. Everybody has a place to be. And here this nation is ready to move. And when you begin to start to kind of look at this passage, you might think, well, it seems a little strange where it got dropped in right after this Nazarite vow. But the more you think about all those things and you consider all that cleansing and people being prepared to come to this holy God and they're, they're about ready to start their uh, march to the promised land, you begin to realize there's this calm 
stopping of God, let's now bless these people. It's quite amazing. I, I thought deeply about this nation. They have no land at this point. They are traveling in a pagan world. All the religions around them have gods they identify with uh, physical in some way, whether a statue or whatever else. Israel has a God that cannot be seen. They're, they're starkly different than the rest of the world. They're about ready to march through a bunch of people who don't like them. You know there's people watching. Military strategy has not changed in a lot of ways. The nations would have been spying on them. They knew what God did to the nation of Egypt. And so in this moment, and it's such a fascinating to think about, they're staging and getting ready to go, and doubtlessly in their hearts they knew they were not a people ready for war on their own. And God stops all that in that moment and focuses in on a blessing of his love for the nation of Israel. I think that's fascinating. I think that shows this deep love of God for his people. And I, if I was there, I would have, this would have been such a worshipful moment. And I trust it was for many who did love the Lord. It's always those, though, who are set apart. Uh, those who understand, I'll think about this, understand that they have been cleansed that could receive such a, a beautiful blessing like this. There, there was probably a mixture of people, some like, oh, okay, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this. And there's others that were in awe of God. And we know that because God raises up leaders from them and we see people who are obedient to God. These people were seeking God and so this blessing was unique to them. And so we have this blessing that's really displaying the heart of God who, who desires to bless his people. And think about this, not just the Nazarites that we just saw in the first half of chapter 6 and not just the priesthood who were going to minister before him and on behalf of the people. This was for all people. You see that in this text. All of the sons of Israel I will bless. And I think that's fascinating and caring of God. Think about that Nazarite vow. We talked about this last week, that most Nazarite vows were just for a short time. They would have been for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. Some of them were lifetime, as we saw. The priests were constantly during morning sacrifices, pronouncing blessings on the temple and on the people and so forth. But, but here, this is a blessing that God guarantees indeed that he is going to be with this people, all of the people. Notice in verse 22 and 23, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to the sons of Israel, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel, and you shall say to them. Well, again, God is communicating through his intercessor, Moses, who's instructing the high priest, Aaron, to speak this blessing to the nation. It's very important. We know these are types that point towards Christ. We've talked about that in great detail. But it's interesting, in this, in this statement that God says, notice he says, you shall say this to them. Don't add it to it. Don't take away from it. 
this is what I want. No human interjection because my words are exactly the words that I want them to hear. Tell them this. I like that. I like that. Now, they, now Moses and Aaron, um, particularly Moses, has seen the nation fail, right? He saw the whole bull, golden bull calf and just a mess, right? God gives explicit instructions. You tell them this. So this priestly or Aaronic blessing here, this invokes several things. And one, it invokes the protection of God upon this nation that was not ready for wars, was not ready for the things that they would face once they broke camp. But it also expresses a beautiful statement that that nation of Israel really owes to God, owes to Yahweh in a lot of ways. That he is their shield. And they need to understand that, that he, they have no hope outside of him. He's going to give them daily grace. He's going to grant them peace. Remember, they haven't seen a lot of that, have they, in 400 years of captivity. And here God promises his people grace and peace and so forth. This blessing or prayer was not just a mere expression of religiosity in some way or religious hope, but it's a statement to live by. He wanted them to live by them. He wanted the nation to be guided by this as they went to the promised land. Put their trust in him is the idea. This is trying to motivate them to trust God. We know that when they get to the border, they will abandon such statement. But that's what God was wanting from them. He gave them everything they needed and to remind them of this. Now, the blessing or the prayer is given in a poetic form. It's a fascinating uh, syntactical structure here when you study this. Most theologians that I read on this said it's possibly the oldest poem in Scripture. And it's a poem because of the way it's constructed. If you look at it, its first line there is a, begins a building or anticipation within the, the poem. Verse 24, Lord bless you, the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, the first line consists of really three Hebrew words and, and then 12 syllables that go with it. And that's the first line. The second line, the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Now you have uh, roughly five Hebrew words and 14 syllables. And then you get to verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And you find seven Hebrew words and 16 syllables. And so even in the syntactical structure of the prayer of the blessing there is this building up there's an anticipation that comes with this poetic prayer notice that three times the name of the lord is proclaimed in the prayer and, and even though there was no need to repeat god's name we know who he was talking about but i believe the repetition really emphasizes the source of israel's benefits and strength and the only one who could truly bless them no one else could bless them Aaron's blessing just humanly would would be empty it's God's blessing and it has a great impact look at verse 27 so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel it's an interesting idea here they shall place they shall 
entrust my name on my children, the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. The I there, notice in the last verse there, right towards the end in 27, it's an emphatic I. Not Moses, not Aaron, not all of them. I will bless them. Now, I love that the lines have this continuing strength to them. They, they're growing in anticipation. There's, there's a growing deeper praise, and, and it ends with that great crescendo of God will give peace. I think there's such beauty to that. And clearly the Lord is the subject of each line, isn't he? There's these verbs and that reflect the character of God, and then there's a blessing. And so you see the subject is the Lord, and then these verbs are bless and keep and shine and be gracious and lift up and give peace. There's just such a beautiful structure to this, and yet simplicity of worship, isn't it? You'll notice in each line... You just see the attitude of God towards his people. And then you see his action. And you say, well, they really haven't proven themselves to deserve this. But isn't that true of us? God richly blesses people who don't deserve his grace and light, uh, grace and, 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 light and, and his peace that he gives, does he? But this is what he does. He's done this throughout the Pentateuch. If you think about some of the passages that we know, we come to this covenant that God had with Abraham. And we find in Genesis 17, 16, he says, I will bless her. He's speaking to that. Your wife is going to have a child and this nation's going to come from it. So quit trying to go to with other options like Eliezer or somebody else. He says, I'll bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. It's really interesting. You remember this when we were studying this. Abraham's trying to find another way around this to get this nation started. And he says, no, no, I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her, by Sarah. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of the nations and kings of people will come to her. And so we see God bless even with Isaac on the mount as he was taken up to be the offering in Genesis 22, 17, 18, after God puts Abraham's faith to the test, he says, indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sands of the sea on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. When God got done handing out the Ten Commandments to Moses, and he taught them to the people in Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, he says, you shall make an altar of earth for me. Remember we talked about that he didn't want a bunch of cut stones like the pagan world would have done for you shall sacrifice on it burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and in every place where I have caused my name to be remembered, and I will come and I will bless you. This is the habit of God, chapter 23 in Exodus, just a little further on, verse 25. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless you. Excuse me, he will bless your bread and your water. And I will remove sickness from your midst. The book of Leviticus, chapter... 26, there's a whole section in there where he says, I'll bless you with rain and produce and trees that bear fruit and grapes that will be gathered in and 
You'll live securely in your land and grant peace in the land and eliminate harmful beasts and no war and chasing off of enemies and dwelling among you and walking among you. It's just a beautiful passage of God's blessing on the nation. And here in Numbers 6, 27, I will bless you right at the end. Deuteronomy chapter 28, some of the last words that we have from Moses, God tells them to bless their cities and country. I'll bless their city and country. They don't even have one yet. But if they trust God, he's going to bless that. He's going to bless their offspring and their produce of the ground, their herds and their flocks, their kneading bulls. Isn't that interesting? They're coming and going. He'll defeat their enemies. He'll fill their barns. He'll make a holy people for himself. They'll abound in prosperity, give them his good storehouse, rain in due season, bless the work of their hands, lend to other nations, but not borrow from them. Be the head and not the tail. So we have a habit of God blessing his undeserving people. Now, naturally, you would see that this is going to end up in other places in the scriptures. And where we find it most prominent, these blessings, or even where you can see that they're reflecting back, is in the Psalms. Turn with me to Psalms chapter 80. I think we all agree as you read this is such a worshipful prayer and so it makes so much sense that it would end up in places of great worship like the psalms here we find the great choir director asap isn't that interesting one that would lead the nation in song and praise of the lord he starts out in verse one oh give ear shepherd of israel he makes some great statements, but drop down to verse 3. He says, oh God, restore us. He's going to say this three times within this passage. And then look what he says. And cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. This, this prayer, this blessing, this Aaronic blessing in number 6 gets remembered throughout the Bible. Look, he says, cause your face to shine upon us. That came right from that blessing that God gave to the nation. Drop down to verse 7. O God of hosts, restore us. Restore means there's something that's fallen apart, right? And notice what he says again. And and cause your face to shine upon us. Drop down to verse 17. Let your hand be upon the man of your your right hand and upon the sons of of the man whom you have made strong. And then drop down to verse 19, is actually was where, O Lord God of hosts, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. So this makes its way through the Psalms. Now, keep your finger there, because I'm going to come back to Psalms here in a, a minute. But look at verse 24. He, the Lord bless you and keep you. So this first line, it's clear that part of God's blessing is to keep his people and, and really focuses on a protecting type of comment here, a, a promise that is, is centered around protecting. And, and you can see this sense of protection from harm, but, but there's, there's a deeper spiritual reality and the more they, more the nation, those who loved God followed him, the more they understood that there was something deeper than just protection. If you're still in the Psalms, flip over to Psalms 121. I think this is important for us because 
I think some of the wild things that go on with prosperity gospel are so focused on the physical when most of the time God is focused on the spiritual aspect. Because we all go through sufferings and illnesses and even experience death of loved ones and so forth. But, but God is, is also protecting our souls, isn't he? Look at Psalms 121, 7 through 8. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will, look at this, keep your soul. That's, that's a powerful, remember, the, the text is saying that there are, in Numbers it says, let the Lord bless you and keep you. And here the psalmist says, and again I believe it's Asaph here, um, will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time. And look at this, it's beyond earth, forth and forever. There's, there's an eternal relationship with a God who protects our souls. This is why Jesus said, don't fear those who can care the body, but fear the one who can destroy the soul. Wow. This is a powerful prayer, isn't it? He keeps us and protects our soul. He has the ability to keep us. And that means he has to keep us from the evil one, right? Right? Satan's goal is always to turn people from Christ, and so the, the result of that is if they don't have Christ, they perish eternally, right? So he protects us from the evil one, and he guards us. What, what a statement we have there. Now turn back to our text in Numbers chapter, verse, chapter 26, and as we think about those in Israel, uh, and, and I thought greatly about this, because you, know, you and I think of this from a New Testament, New Covenant type of thinking, and we understand the finished work of Christ, but look in the Old Testament, men and women who make it into the hall of faith that we see, and probably many, 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 many others that aren't listed there, they, they're there because their faith was in a God alone who would rescue them from their sins and make them right before him. And so they put their faith in God and there was evident in their salvation and they expressed their trust in God and we see that. That's why we, we look at some of these psalmists, the Asaphs and Davids and so forth that wrote and, and men and women, the Hannahs and so forth in the Bible. These people were genuine believers because their faith was in God alone. And absolutely believed that God would deliver them. Deliver them. There was, no, there was no question that Jews were waiting for a Messiah because it was so well taught throughout the Scriptures. Now, again, look at verse 25. So we've looked at the Lord will bless you and he'll keep you. Now look at the next stanza. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Now, now here's a very vivid metaphor, isn't there? It, it, it captures God in relationship to light. And that's an extraordinary thing, right? Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 6, verse 16, in, in his first letter to Timothy, he says, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in what? Unapproachable light. That's an amazing statement of the glory of God. He goes on to say, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And this is why we... We fall on, the, on our knees before God because he sent his son to show us everything he is. And we approach him through his son. Now, 
certainly the Israelites, how would they have seen this light? Well, in a pillar of fire by night and a, and a cloud of light by day, right? And so he says, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. This is, this is this blazing God that's before him. This is the shine of kind of glory that filled the temple at the end of Exodus, right? And, and, and everyone steps back. And they were stepped back from the mount when he was on the mount with, with Moses. This is the same God they want to shine upon their face. Moses' face was clearly seen as being in the presence of God. And now this, this, this God of theirs is, is blessing them that his face would shine upon them. It's, a, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? And I think those who loved God desired to be in his presence. Right? We, we see times where the Israelites are not right with God and they go, Moses, you go talk to them. We don't want anything to do with them. But this prayer draws them into his presence, don't they? This is, the Lord will make his face shine on you. There's a, there's a relationship here. And of course, this makes its way into the psalm. Psalms 31, 16. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. Psalm 67, 1. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. This got written on the hearts of the people of Israel who loved God. And it came out in everything they did. Now, we should take a minute to kind of think of the opposite of light, which is darkness. So when you think about this blessing of God in this shining His light that comes from His face, His very presence upon His people... It has to be speaking of freedom from darkness just as well, right? This was a people that lived in darkness for years of slavery, right? And so this great Aaronic blessing reminds them that his face is freedom. He now shines light into your life and gives you direction and lights your path. Without it, you stumble your way to hell. What a beautiful saying this is. And this is why psalmist cried out, make your face to shine upon your servant. You know that in God and in his glory, there is freedom. Jesus begins his earthly ministry. Matthew 4, 16, he quotes an Old Testament passage in his own way and says the people are seen in darkness. This is the beginning of his ministry. Have seen a great what? Light. This is the one they've been crying out for God. Shine your face upon us. And even, even the shepherds witnessed the great glory of God that reflected from the angels even at the announcement. So this light is connected to the glory of God. And so in a way this prayer is showing Shine your glory upon us. And I've said this so many times. When you got saved, you saw his glory. The glory of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth, shined on you. And you saw for the very first time. You heard about the gospel. You were at church. You were this and that. You heard all these things. But it never made sense. And you were never a worshiper. You were just religious. God just shined on you, didn't he? 
Now the resulting action of God's lit up smile on his people, I wrote that in my notes thinking about this, can only be described in, in look at this phrase here in verse 25, as gracious. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Be gracious to you. Well, this is God's grace, right? This is that unmerited favor upon his people that delivers people from their sins and even from their daily troubles at times, right? God is always gracious whether we survive an illness or not. He's always gracious, but, but this is the result of his glory shining on us. We receive his grace. I, I just marvel when I think and sit about, think and sit about that truth. God, I would never... Have your grace if you would not have shown me your glory. And because you showed me your glory through your son's finished work, I now experience your grace. See how they go hand in hand? And the beautiful thing, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, writes in Psalms 4, 1. Now listen to what he's dealing with here. Answer me when I call, O God, my righteousness. This is Psalms 4, 1. You have relieved me in my distress. Listen to this. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. See, they understood that God was a God of grace. They they want his grace. As David goes on and starts to wrestle with his own sins, Psalms 41.4, we know 51, and we'll come to that in a second. But 41.4 is also David who says, As for me, I said, this was David quoting himself, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Do our souls get damaged when we sin? Does your soul need healing? David knew that sin had damaged his soul, and he he wanted to to experience the grace of God. He, He he later in Psalms 51, 1, after being confronted by Nathan the prophet of his sin with Bathsheba, he begins this great confession and repentive psalm. He says, be gracious to me, verse 1, O God, according to your loving kindness. And grace and loving kindness, those words are strongly connected, aren't they? Then he says, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. And so he knows that graciousness is is who God is. That's from from the beginning. They knew God blessed them in his graciousness and they call out for it. When's the last time you called out for God's graciousness? Not in an abusive way, not in a flippant way, but truly needing God's grace in a situation beyond salvation. Pastors, we commonly pray for people and we will say, oh God, will you be gracious to these people as they suffer through this situation? Be gracious to them. So we call on God of grace because that's what he does. He is gracious. And it isn't to be abused. We know that in Romans chapter 6. Oh, grace, grace. Just keep on sinning. No, no, that's not a believer. A believer hears and sees and senses and understands and reads the grace of God and it melts your heart. It's the mark of a believer. Look at verse 26. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Well, where shining his face on you would refer to this gracious 
look from God's face. Here, to lift up one's eyes, I think this sees that God understands us, right? He understands us and he demands our attention, doesn't he? You're wanting his attention and he wants your attention. And so there's this, there's this need for the attention of God, right? In this phrase. Look what he says. Oh Lord, lift up his countenance on you. May he turn his attention towards you. The psalmist says his ear is inclined to you. He's listening to you. Back to Psalms 4, 6 through 8, David writes this. Many will say, who will show us any good? Listen to the phrase here. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. He's taken that right from that. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when the grain and the new wine abound in peace. There's another word that's going to come here. I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I remember my mom reading those passages to me, being afraid at night, reminding me you can sleep. God's on job. <laughs> well, having the attentive God of Israel would have been very important to them, right? They're in a sense, though they're very organized because God has made them organized. They are not war ready. They're faithless in some ways, as we'll see when they get to the nation. But a attentive person to God is rewarded with peace. I think that's what he's saying. The Lord lift up his countenance on us and give you peace. So peace isn't just the absence of war, but the word denotes the idea of well-being. It, it certainly has salvation in that, doesn't it? It, it, it? Just think about what this is meaning. Where we lose our peace sometimes is when our eyes are off our Savior and they're on to all of our problems, right? You lose your peace quickly, don't you? I see you nodding your heads out there. You know what that is. You lose a lot of things. Joy, peace, patience, kindness. No, oh, wait a minute. Spirit's involved in this. So being attentive to the Lord as he is attentive to us brings peace to us. And without a doubt, peace is the result of the goodness of God on his people. It's a gift to them. Lord, lift up your countenance on you. Give you peace. Obviously, when we read this great benediction or blessing today, it still brings comfort to God's people, doesn't it? I mean, in the context, we know this is to the nation of Israel. We know the situation. We're marking it very clearly. They're about ready to break camp. They're about ready to head for the border of the promised land. We know all that situation, but you and I can read this or hear it read at the end of a sermon as a benediction and your heart melts, doesn't it? It brings comfort to you because it's it's God, right? It's his characteristics. It's who he is. And, and I, I think what, as I, more I studied it, it depicts our relationship with God just as it did the nation of Israel's relationship with God because God doesn't change. And I love that. And so I, I think some maybe have heard it at the end of sermons so many times. Uh, there was churches that I attended when I was young that 
it was just it was just standard repetition. You kind of went and you didn't think much about it. I remember Pastor Brian read it a couple years ago at the end of one of his sermons, and and I really gripped me that day. I thought, wow, what a beautiful thing. I haven't used, hadn't used it for a while. And and I started weaving it into my benedictions after that. I started. God, cause your face to shine on us as we learn to obey. And I, I, I wrote it into a lot of the benedictions that I was writing. Because it reminds us of this relationship we have with God. And so it gives us confidence. Now, there's this triple repetition of the divine name of the Lord here. Don't you see that? Lord, Lord, Lord. Uh, many, many believe this is in reference to the Trinity. And I think the New Testament really affirms that Jesus is Lord and that the Holy Spirit is Lord. I think the Bible teaches that. He's in equality with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, right, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking of the Spirit of God says Jesus is a curse. Remember, we just tackled these. And no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, right? So there's a connection there. And 2 Corinthians 3.17 says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit. So you can see this Trinitarian involvement in this Aaronic blessing um, all the way back in Numbers chapter 6. Now... All the truths of Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 26 can be witnessed in the Godhead. And let me give you some, a lot of verses here, okay? And now we're not going to look at these because I'm going to give you a lot of them to you. And, I, and I'm relating this now to the New Testament so that you know that, that you can use this benediction for your own life even though it is couched in the Old Testament and its first context is the nation of Israel. But, but I want to give you surety to use it because we see the same principles throughout the New Testament because God does not change. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, God keeps us. Excuse me, verse 5, Hebrews 13, 5, under God keeps us, the first poetic line, right? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. He's quoting Deuteronomy 31, 5 there, the writer of Hebrews referring to God himself. He does not leave us. He keeps us, right? He doesn't forsake us. But Christ keeps us as well. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives me I will lose what? How many of them? None of them. So Christ keeps us. The Spirit keeps us. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So we're kept by the Spirit. We're sealed, right? By the Spirit. Well, how about the graciousness of God? Well, God is certainly gracious to us, and we see that in the New Testament as well. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. All is not universalism. All means every walk of life, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be before God. The grace of God has appeared. Now we know that grace came through the Lord Jesus Christ, but God is a gracious God. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
That not of yourself, it is a gift of who? Of God. So throughout the New Testament, we see God gracious to us. But Christ, of course, is too, right? Grace from Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, according, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, and grace which he granted in us Christ Jesus from all eternity. It was granted through Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 16, 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He says that repeatedly. Closes out many of his epistles with that statement. Well, what about the graciousness of the Holy Spirit? How does that work? Well, there's, there's several fascinating verses, but I picked out a couple of them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Now listen to this. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who tramples under the foot of the Son of God? What a statement. And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And listen to this. And has insulted the Spirit of grace. The Spirit is called the Spirit of grace there. <laughs> and then 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. The grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit, he brings all Trinity in with those overwhelming terms. Well, what about peace? We know that God says in this passage that he will give you peace. This blessing has this gift of peace in it, right? Well, Colossians 1, in like almost every one of his epistles, except Galatians, uh, Paul opens up with this very warm and loving greeting, and he says things like this, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace from God. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus God is a God of peace, and he gives that to his children. What about how's Christ work into this peace? Well, you know some great passages. How about Romans 5, 1 through 2? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace comes from Christ. And you see, this, all of this is all reflected in the Trinitarian work of God. I really love uh, this one, Ephesians chapter 2, 13 through 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then you love verse 14, don't you? For he himself is our peace. <laughs> well, how does the Spirit work in this? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. See, he gives us peace, doesn't he? Romans 8, 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit is very much involved in the unity of peace in our church. Now, this blessing under the new covenant, as we think about the New Testament here, it just gives us an added, added dimension or depth to this Aaronic blessing because now we have the privilege of seeing the full the full work of the Trinity on display in our salvation, don't we? But for the nation of Israel, think about them. They, they had had all the census taken of the tribes, the census of the, Le, the Levitical tribe as well had been taken. The camp had been cleansed. 
um, the way to God was, was very cleared out, how you can be reconciled, how you come to him. This was greatly laid out. His holiness was on display, how he was to be revered, even how the, uh, the tabernacle was to be disassembled and assembled. The holiness of God was revered there and protected. And the nation knows the standard that God has now set before them. And each person has their assignment, even where they're going to sleep. But now God says, I want to bless you. I want to bless you. And I want you to follow me to the promised land. Look at verse 27. So they invoked, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. See, the Lord's ready to bless them. Are they deserving of it? No, they're not. Are they going to fail? Tremendously. Even Moses will out of anger strike the rock, step on the authority of God for a moment. And yet God says, I will bless you and keep you. I'll shine my face on you and be gracious to you. I'll lift up my countenance on you and give you peace. Today, um, many individuals and churches, I don't know, really know how to follow God to the promised land. Meism, the me monster of consumerism that has made its way into Christianity has often marred the view of how you follow God to the promised land. How do you get there? Who's the, who, who's the way there? Who's the truth there? Who's the life there? That gets just marred and washed out by all the desires and abuse of gifts and all the things that we go on, uh, go on that we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. See, I think people don't know how to march behind the Lord. They don't like his view of marriage. They don't like his view of the death penalty. They don't like his view on much, except that they want him to give him things, give them things. And so I don't think people march very well. I don't think they get in behind the Lord and submit to his lordship and worship him, and that's why there's so many problems in America's church. America's church. They routinely forget to dress themselves in the spiritual armor that God has so freely given them. They forget to realize that there's an enemy of their soul that's out there. They forget that God has laid waste to the enemy of death. And so it's often taken for granted. And many start out before really setting things in order. And we're not talking about works in any way here, but the way we set out for the kingdom of God, the way we set out for the promised land is worship. And line up where he lines us up. Serve where he asks us to serve him because he's worthy of it. I think every Christian should know and confess the great salvation of our God and that his grace was dispensed on us as unworthy sinners and giving us peace that passes all understanding. And when we remind ourselves of that, we want to get behind our Savior. And I think it causes us to dress ourselves every morning in the armor of God. See, there's a long war against God. And we are his soldiers, aren't we? We fight with him. And so we dress ourselves with 
the helmets and breastplates and shoes, shot of the gospel and all the beautiful sword of the spirit and all those things God has given us. As we line up behind him, we are not running out ahead of him to fight battles that only he can win. Look, we want to we want to follow in the shepherd's shadow. We want the dust of his feet to be on us we're that close to him. But unfortunately, the church has moved away from that. And so, well, how do you get back? Well, every Christian needs to be captured by the holiness of God. You need to be captured by his glory. To desire that his light shine upon you in such a way that that you're overwhelmed daily. And when you think about the gospel, when you preach the gospel to yourself, you are overwhelmed personally, not, not always thinking about somebody else that needs that, but overwhelmed personally that he would be so gracious to show you his glory through Jesus Christ alone. I think every Christian should remind themselves how they became holy and blameless before God. So you have to do that daily. Because pretty soon, we feel pretty glorious in our own boots, don't we? And we start telling others what to do, and legalism creeps in. I mean, it is a humbling fact that God took filthy, undeserving sinners as you and me and makes us holy and blameless forever in His presence. That is a staggering truth of the Scriptures. It should make us sing. And in our sorrows, though we sorrow at difficult things in our lives, it should restore our souls, shouldn't it? I think every Christian needs to look personally at how they're progressing in their sanctification. Are you growing? Are you being more conformed into the image of God's beloved Son? That is His goal. Is it an ongoing process in your life? Or are you sitting on the side of the road watching others run by you? Well, we close out number six here with challenging every Christian here to be a worshiper. And as you read this and think about this, maybe before you go to bed tonight, just ponder on this blessing from our God. Ponder on how He fulfilled the entirety of this through His Son, and how he shines, his face shines on us through Jesus Christ. Ponder that tonight. Ponder that Jesus is now the light of the world. And he always will be, even though much will remain in darkness. And ponder the fact that the Holy Spirit granted you peace with God forever. You'll never, never be at war with God. Because that's a battle you'll lose. <laughs> We're at peace with God through the work of the Spirit, the Father's plan and the Son's fulfillment of it. What a glorious benediction, isn't it? Let me read this and we'll close. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Amen?